listening to Breakthrough News. It's 5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back with you here. Happy to be back with you on Wednesday, the 10th of February, 2021, here on The Punch-Out, 5 p.m. Eastern, as we always are, the halfway through the week edition of The Punch-Out. Plenty for you here on the show, including a major oil spill in California in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, also, on the speaking about environmental factors, we're going to be talking about how subways in the United States have dangerously bad air quality. I'm deadly serious about that one, and you will see that. But before we get to either of those two critically important issues, we want to start here with the $15 an hour minimum wage and well, a little bit where that stands. Well, right now, the $15 an hour minimum wage issue, raising it, that is to $15 an hour minimum wage over five years, proposed by President Joe Biden as a part of the stimulus, supported by Senate Budget Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders in a big way. Well, that's still at the center of the discussion in Congress over the next relief bill. However, Sanders and Biden have split on this one. In a recent interview earlier this week with CBS... President Biden stated that he did not expect his original proposal uh, to survive here and that the $15 an hour minimum wage increase with the five-year phase in and eliminating the tipped minimum wage uh, will not pass. It will not make it. Biden claimed that he did not believe it would meet the requirements for the budget reconciliation process that they're using to avoid a filibuster so that they can pass it with Kamala Harris breaking the tie rather than having to get 60 votes, that uh, those have to be budget reconciliation narrowly targeted around revenue-raising quote-unquote measures. But Sanders disagrees, says that it can go through budget reconciliation. Many House Democrats also agree, and a number of them saying it's going to happen, it's going to make it, uh, but Biden's saying it's not going to make it. So it was his proposal, so in some ways it tells you something. Now, Besides the procedure issue, there is also just the issue of uh, the Democrats who oppose this legislation. We're talking about 51 votes and are going to push hard against it. Now, there's not that many Democrats pushing against it, period. But many saying, well, maybe it should be phased in in a different way. Maybe it shouldn't be 15. Maybe it should be different in other parts of the country. So there's and, and it, some people who are going to use process or procedure or whatever to hide behind the fact that what they really want is poverty wages. But nevertheless, that's a part of the negotiations and they are going to make a big deal and all already have, given what Biden is saying here, of steering those negotiations towards essentially eliminating the proposal or, you know, making it seem so difficult to pass it, push it through that it just gets dropped off, which at least some, including President Biden, seem willing to do. That is drop the $15 hour minimum wage increase, even though it's over a five-year phase in. So the biggest argument that's always used about why you shouldn't do these things and that these moderate Democrats, of course, all Republicans, and of course, all businesses, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has been pushing this in a major way 
really since Biden was inaugurated uh, in their statements on this issue, is that, well, you're going to lose jobs. It's going to cost a lot of jobs. In fact, a CBO report on the Democratic proposal to raise the wage said that just over one million jobs will probably be lost if you raise the wage like this. And they said, oh, you know, there's some good things, but you're going to lose just over one million jobs. Now, <laughs> there's a whole range of things we can say about this, and we will. But the first thing is it's almost certain that the CBO is just outright overestimating. And I say that because they've done it before. In fact, they've done it before recently. A group of researchers recently took a look at a similar CBO finding from 2019 and found that the effect, uh, and that means what actually happened in real life, not what they predicted, that the CBO estimate was basically off by 50%. That uh, the half the number of jobs they claimed uh, were going to be lost were actually lost. It's, it's actually even... A little bit worse than that, but I don't want to get too statistical on you. But nevertheless, they heavily overestimated. And, you know, quite frankly, the consensus of almost every single study ever done that actually looks at what happens after you wage the minimum wage, after you raise the minimum wage, shows that there is no real employment effect. And, you know, the core argument of those talking about the job losses will say, or you're going to lose low-wage jobs because employers are not going to be able to hire more workers or will fire some workers or whatever it may be in order to raise the wages for the workers they have left. That everyone is so strapped for cash, they're going to take it down to bare-bones levels and you'll lose low-wage jobs, which means that people who are looking for employment, younger people, that they're not going to be able to get jobs and it shuts people out of the labor market and so on and so forth. Well... A very recent report, like it came out last year, looked at this exact issue. They looked at actually, quote, the effect of minimum wages on low-wage jobs using 138 state-level minimum wage changes between 1979 and 2016. Seems like a pretty good sample size, right? They found that, quote, the overall number of low-wage jobs remained essentially unchanged over the five years following the increase. There you go. Another recent report produced for the Treasury Department in the United Kingdom. Her Majesty's Treasury Department in the United Kingdom here. This is not some communist magazine. The Treasury Department of the United Kingdom looked at a, looked at a, did this similar study. They reviewed all of the extant evidence in the U.S., about this issue of whether jobs would be lost and said that any, any, any decrease at all in the number of jobs due to raising the minimum wage was quote-unquote muted and quote-unquote small. And they were saying this in this paper as an argument in raising the minimum wage. Now, the fact that this scare tactic is spread by business makes you think, uh, to make you think something is happening that just isn't happening. That, as I said before, that the businesses are all just strapped for cash and they can't afford to pay anyone more. Also, just statistically speaking, this is false. Workers earning the current federal minimum wage, the current federal minimum wage, are paid less per hour in real dollars than their counterparts were paid 50 years ago. And if the minimum wage had been raised at the same pace of productivity growth since the 60s, it would be at over $20 an hour today. But another way to look at this issue of, uh, you know, can they pay people is to think about it like this, just how even this relatively modest proposal would have huge effects on people. I mean, nowhere in the U.S. really is a living wage for a single person with one child, for instance, below $15 an hour. So raising it to 15 over five years, where prices, there'll be inflation, there'll still be increases. Uh, so raising it to 15 over five years is essentially a concession to the idea that large swaths of people, quite frankly, will be making better wages, but still below poverty wages. Below poverty wages. Now, all that being said, 
saying it's a modest proposal. Still, look at this. At the end of this phase in over the overall effect would be at the average affected worker whose wage would be risen by this increase over five years to $15 an hour would result in an average of $3,300 a year more in income per year. So just think about it like that. People are making so far below the poverty line, millions and millions of people, that even a modest proposal to raise the wages to still below the poverty line for many of them would mean that they would still be gaining thousands of dollars a year. Gives you a sense how deep in the hole uh, many workers are. I, I shouldn't even say deep in the hole. They were thrown down in the hole. It's not like they ended up there by accident. The reality is, and you can make the point a little bit more stronger here uh, by just looking at some of the congressional district data. Mississippi's 2nd Congressional District, that's the Black Belt areas, 46% of all workers would get wage increases over this uh, period of five-year five phase-in. In West Virginia's third district, that's Appalachia, 40% would get a raise. In New Mexico's second district, 42%. I could go on and on. You get the point here in all sorts of pockets all across America, especially in the South, by the way. Nearly half of all workers are working for poverty wages. In states like Florida, every single congressional district is at either nearly 30% or higher in terms of who would get a wage is the whole state based on low-wage labor to a large degree. That's what you're seeing here, and that's what's reflected in these numbers. People, in reality, are overworked and underpaid. You probably feel like that because you are. You aren't wrong. A smaller group of people is taking a larger share of the income and using scare tactics about how the minimum wage will cost jobs to create a false picture of just how little they are paying. So many millions of people and just how much more they could afford to pay without changing their rich living standards one bit. But I can understand why they'd want to hide that, because I mean, hey, if people really knew all this, they might just revolt. Well, a new report this week has detailed that air pollution levels in subway systems in the United States has reached alarming levels, dangerously high levels here. Uh, and, you know, train breaks, the friction between the rails and the wheels, uh, you know, the decay of different things throws up all these tiny particles. They're called PM2.5, if you want to know. And there basically is, you know, exactly what you know air pollution to bleed, just tiny specks of all sorts of various chemicals and particle form. It's very dangerous to inhale, particularly bad for your respiratory and cardiovascular system. So everything you've heard about pollution above ground, same thing applies underground here in the subways. The nationally safe daily level of exposure to these PM2.5s is supposed to be 35 micrograms per cubic meter. So you don't want to have more than 35 per cubic meter every day to be safe. The New York City subway has levels of 251 micrograms per cubic meter. Washington, D.C., 145. Station by station, it can be even worse. Christopher Street Station in New York City had a particle pollution level of 1,499 micrograms per cubic meter, which, you know, a lot more than 35. But get this, it's also 77 times higher than the above ground pollution in the same area of New York. Mm. It's also higher than the worst days in Delhi, in India, a city widely noted as one of the world's worst when it comes to air pollution. Researchers noted that if you commuted there to Christopher Street daily to and from work, you would increase your risk of an adverse cardiovascular event. I guess that's a heart attack by 10%. You're commuting through Christopher Street, you're 10% more likely to get a heart attack. Broadway Station in Boston, 2nd Avenue Station in New York City, and 30th Street Station in Philadelphia 
also among the country's worst. So if you're commuting through any of those, uh, you could be taking serious health damage here. Researchers note that this is so understudied that there's a lot more research has to be done to understand the trends that are happening because the various particles, I mean, it's everything from diesel fuel to the train brakes to the decay of dead rat carcasses, just many different things that are at play. Either way, it's deeply, deeply alarming. It's affecting millions of people on a daily basis in this country. Clearly, air pollution in subways is a major issue that probably none of us thought was one. <laughs> While well, sticking here with the serious environmental damage being done to people, the Chevron refinery in Richmond, California has leaked at least 100 gallons of oil into the San Francisco Bay. It's an oil-water mix. Nevertheless, it's still a lot of oil, and it's bad. Uh, on Tuesday, started Tuesday evening into this morning, seems maybe late, early this morning. It's not clear exactly when. Look, they plugged the thing is what Chevron is saying. But nevertheless, they're still trying to contain it. Uh, so that is still ongoing. It seems likely that the true amount of leaked oil is probably closer to 600 gallons, 600 gallons of oil leaked into the San Francisco Bay in less than a day. The true, uh, the, the incident itself, I should say, triggered a health advisory, actually, for the surrounding areas. So it was bad enough that the whole immediate surrounding area of Richmond, people had a health advisory. Uh, the exposed chemicals from these spills leach into the air. So it's not just water. But in the water, environmental groups have been expressing serious damage about certain wildlife and, and potential impacts there and are, are looking quite a bit at what could happen there. Chevron, of course, saying, well, we're doing everything. Nothing to worry about here. Cleaning it up. But the reality is, is these oil spills almost always leave permanent damage to the surrounding ecosystems that have all sorts of ways of spilling over into human health. In particular, it often causes elevated respiratory issues, neurological issues, pain and skin issues in populations that are living close to large spills uh, over time where they have, have studied the long-term effects of these spills. Sadly, very sadly, in fact, there, this is just nothing new for this Richmond refinery, which has been the source of major environmental issues for decades and decades and decades and decades. Richmond, California, it's a majority Black and Latino, very working class city, and it has been just bombarded by environmental racism, just a pumping of serious health hazards uh, from the Chevron refinery from 1902. 1902 to 1987, the refinery just was wantonly dumping whatever chemicals they wanted to into the bay, including tons of deadly mercury. Uh, the place has exploded three different times, 89, 99, and 2012. And after it exploded in 2012, around 15,000 residents reported medical problems and sought treatment, including large numbers of respiratory problems exploded three times since 1989. They also use flaring to burn off excess natural gas, which throws all sorts of chemicals up to foul the air. I mean, there's really only one silver lining here. It's that, as we often say on the show, oppression breeds resistance. And over the past several years, the Richmond Progressive Alliance has formed a powerful organization of working class residents. They've got a number of seats on the city council. They're on other boards, other elected positions. They've been using that leverage to push more progressive policies overall, including, by the way, one of the most advanced violence interrupter programs using non-police methods to save people's lives, but not locking people up. Uh, but they've also been using it as major leverage to complement what have been decades of determined fights by residents in Richmond for a healthier environment. Uh, the spill is just a reminder of not only how far we have to go, though, but how even in liberal, deep blue California, many of the powers that be are more than happy to condone a little pollution if it facilitates big corporate profits. 
That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah.